Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Just had to make sure my Bible was up here. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9 as we continue our way through the text this morning. We're looking at verses 27 to 31, Jesus healing two blind men. So we will read the text, and then we will pray, and then we will get to work. So if you would, look with me, Matthew chapter 9, 27 to 31. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. If you would, please, let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much just that we are able to draw near to you, Lord, this morning, that we are able to lift our voices, lift our hearts to you, to sing to you, to express to you so much, Lord, our gratitude for all that you have done for us on the cross. And Lord, as we turn now to your word to hear you speak to us, I pray, God, that we would understand that our walk with you is not on the basis of gratitude, but that we walk by faith. Lord, help us to understand the spiritual life, our continuing relationship with you as an act of faith, not an expression of gratitude. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early 1700s in the southern, uh, southern part of France, at Iquez Mortes, there was a group of Huguenots who believed strongly in having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And at that time, uh, the Roman Catholic Church persecuted them because they were advocating practices and, and spirituality that was not considered acceptable in the Roman Catholic Church. And so they rounded up a group of them, and one lady in particular, her name was Marie Durant, a group of ladies who believed in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ apart from anything to do with the Pope, walking in a personal relationship with Christ. They didn't ask them to do anything immoral. They didn't ask them to change their day-to-day lifestyle. They didn't ask them to change their pattern of prayer or their scripture reading. None of this was put upon them. Simply one request, we, the Roman Catholic Church, ask you, the Huguenots, to declare one word. Jabjur. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly according to the French. But basically, they were just asking them to say, we reject the Huguenot faith. That's all they were asking them to do. One word. Jabjur. Just say Jabjur. Marie Durant and approximately 40 other women with her said, we believe that we have a personal relationship with Jesus. We cannot deny that. And so the response was to lock these 40 women in a tower, in a small room, And they would stay there until they said one word, Jabjur. And for 38 years, 
these women, 40 of them, refused to say Jabjur for 38 years. There was no washroom. The room was small, crowded, and cramped. Was enough space for all of them to lie down and sleep at night. They had to take turns lying down. There was nowhere to run or to stretch your legs or to walk. Your air came through a very tiny crack in the ceiling. Your food was delivered to you once a day. It was basic rice and water. Nothing elaborate, nothing fancy. This is what they lived on for 38 years. For 38 years, they had nowhere to go besides the 40 individuals that were gathered in that room. They had no one to talk to. And for 38 years, they experienced the slow loss of muscle tone, the steady decay of their bodies, lack of exercise, and improper nutrition. Accounts record the gradual stupefaction of their senses. Lack of intellectual stimulation resulted in them eventually going mad. And for 38 years, they persevered in this room, insisting that they knew Jesus Christ personally. After 38 years, there was a change in government, and they were eventually released inside this cell room. For those who survived, they found one word scratched on the wall. It was not Jabjur. The word they found was resistez, resist. And for 38 years, they did. Now, for Marie Durant and her fellows, do you think that they were able to endure in that cell room for 38 years on the basis of gratitude for what Jesus Christ had done for them? Or do you think that they were able to persevere for 38 years as a result of faith? She was marriageable. She was young. She was beautiful. She was lovely. She could have had a wonderful life. But for 38 years, she said no to that life and yes to this tiny prison cell. If you are here today and you often struggle in your walk with Christ, I want you to know that there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. And I fear that for too many of us, we would lack the simple courage and the simple will to survive for 38 years in a prison cell because of one fact we operate largely, our Christian life operates on the basis of gratitude or happiness for what Christ has done for us and not on the basis of faith, not on the basis of hope. And that's the problem that we encounter here in Matthew chapter 9. I want you to take a look at this. We've got two blind men. Jesus is going to heal both of them. Then he's going to ask them to do something very, very simple. Don't tell anybody about it. And they're going to disobey. Take a look with me. Verse 27. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him. Well, where is he passing on from? Just a quick review. It's been a couple of weeks. The miracle just before this, he raised a girl back to life. Her name is Talitha. It's not from this particular, from this particular gospel here in Matthew. We learn that from the gospel of Mark. He raises this daughter of a uh, synagogue official, raises her back to life. He puts everybody out of the house. He raises her back to life. It's just him and his disciples who observe this. And of course, it says in verse 26, the report of this went throughout all that district. So he leaves that house. He's moving away from there. It says here in verse 28, when he entered into the house, so he's leaving Jairus's house, the ruler of the synagogue, leaving his house, and he's moving on to a different house. 
It could be Peter's um, mother-in-law house. It could be somebody's house. We don't know where he's going. He's still in Capernaum. He's walking away from this house. He's moving over to a new location. On the way, as he is going on from there, it says explicitly that he encountered two blind men on the road. They make a startling claim. They say, have mercy on us. Nothing new about that. Lots of people are asking Jesus for miracles. It's the title by which they identify him. They say, have mercy on us. Look at this. Son of David. Now, this is a fantastic thing. For the first century reader, this would be akin to you or I sitting in the optometrist's office, going to get our eyes checked, maybe get our prescription glasses updated. And as we're sitting in the optometrist's waiting room, the door opens and two blind men walk in with their canes, tapping away, feeling their way forward. And all of a sudden, one of them says to the other, hey, look, there's a dime in the corner of the room. And they begin to fight each other over the dime, making their way for the dime. And you're thinking, blind men seeing a dime in the corner of the room? Are they really blind? Are they just putting on an act? It's a pretty spectacular sight. These guys call Jesus son of David. Now, that's spectacular for this very fact. The son of David, the coming king, is supposed to come in power, nobility, on a white horse with a flashing sword. He's supposed to be a conqueror. He's supposed to be a king. Now, up until this point in the Gospel of Matthew, we've heard him identified son of God. We've heard him identified son of man. People are talking about him. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? We know his lineage, we know his birth, we know he's the descendant of King David. Matthew has recorded that for us, but up until this point in time, nobody has drawn all these dots together, and nobody has seen him for who he truly is. This title, Son of David, it pulls it all together. This is the king. They don't see him, they have no idea what he looks like, they're not even sure which person in the crowd is him. They know the miracles. They've heard the report of what he's doing. They're thinking about it. And without being able to see, they see something that everybody else misses. This is the king. This is royalty. That's what makes their statement so startling. Two blind guys walk in a room. They're not supposed to be able to see a dime in the corner, and yet these two blind guys show up, and they see it better than anyone else there with Christ. Have mercy on us, son of David. So they follow him along, calling out, and the Greek, the ESV translation doesn't really do justice to what they're doing. It says they cried out, they cried aloud, have mercy on us. They're shouting at him. As he's making his way from house A to house B, as they're walking along on the road, they're like, have mercy, son of David. Have mercy, son of David. There's a crowd there, but these guys at the top of their lungs are belting it out. Have mercy on us, son of David. He makes it to the house where he is going. The crowds are obviously kept outside. And these two guys are invited in. Come on in. Let's have a conversation. He asks them this very simple question. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe it? 
Do you believe it? The question is oriented towards them. What is your belief? Now, they've been following him all the way, shouting out, son of David, son of David, son of David. Do you think they have an intellectual understanding of who he is? Absolutely. They're crying out for him to have mercy on them. In other words, they clearly want him to heal their blindness. So do you think they have faith that he can do it? Absolutely. There's no question about their faith. And yet, Jesus wants a moment with them. He pulls them inside the house. He keeps the crowds outside, and he asks them this question, do you believe that I can do this? Now, we all know Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is omniscient. He already knows the, the capacity and the quality of their faith. He's not actually looking for them to give him some sort of information that he himself does not already know, which means that the question is for their benefit. Now, if you're going to answer Christ and tell him, yes, I believe, a couple of things have to take place. Number one, you've been shouting out like a madman, following him all the way along the road. And these aren't like paved roads or paved sidewalks. I mean, there's rocks, there's uneven ground here. They're probably tripping and following, but they're keeping up with him. You've been following him this whole way, yelling at him, shouting at him, have mercy, son of David. He asks you very pointedly, do you believe that I can do this for you? He already knows the answer to, their question, to the question he's asking. So he wants them to pause for a moment, and he wants them to really think about it. He wants them to really consider, do you really believe that I can do this? You know, if you're blind and your full-time occupation is begging, and you just walk around asking people for money, and that's, that's what you do for a living... You come to the realization that he's son of David. There's some tension there. Absolutely. You're making an accusation. You're making a claim that Jesus Christ is the king of Israel. That's going to fly in the face of any Roman officials that might be standing around. You're blind. You don't know who's there. It's already starting to tick off the Pharisees, the religious establishment. Again, you're blind. You don't know who's there. So you're just calling out, crying out, son of David, have mercy, son of David, have mercy. Now, if somebody grabs you and says, what are you doing? Oh, I'm a blind man. I'm stupid. I don't know. I thought he was the son of David. You know, you complete ignorance, right? So they are making a cry for mercy. They are identifying him as son of David. But Jesus pulls him into the room, and it's face to face now. Are you going to really own what you're saying about me? Are you really going to own it? Do you really believe it? Later on, he's going to say, according to your faith, verse 29, be it done to you. From the question that he asks and from the statement he makes following their response, we understand that at the end of the day, there are some things that require us to place our confidence in Jesus. There are many situations in life where it is completely impossible to help someone unless they will surrender their own particular judgment and trust in your judgment. In other words, they say, you know what, I don't think I understand the situation. I don't trust my own assessment. I'm just going to put all of my confidence in you. A couple of cases in point. My daughter is learning to swim. I'm trying to teach her how to float. You take a deep breath and you lay backwards in the water. The water will hold you up if you hold your breath. Does she believe that? No. 
Because everything she sees, everything she's experienced, her entire world so far to this point, as it has been lived in the water, tells her one inescapable, unalterable conclusion that if she lays back in the water, she's going underwater. So I tell her, Chloe, just take a deep breath. <gasps> okay, lean back. No, I'm not doing that. Now, does she trust me? Yeah, she does. And I ask her, do you really believe me? And she's like, yes, yes, I do. Okay, take a deep breath. <gasps> Lean back. I can't do it, I can't do it. Because at the end of the day, she loves her dad, she trusts in her dad, but at the end of the day, she trusts in her own assessment of what is actually going to happen, what she thinks will actually happen, than what I'm telling her will happen. There is no way for me to teach my daughter to float in the water until she will suspend her judgment of the situation and say, as crazy as this is, maybe the old man is right. How many of you fathers in here wish your daughters would think that more often? Maybe my understanding of the situation is a little bit better than your understanding of the situation. It happens all the time. A child gets a splinter in their finger. It hurts. It's throbbing. They've tried everything they can do to get the, the splinter out of their finger. Come here, I'll help you. You walk over. They walk over. You pull out a needle. Whoa, dude. Hey, man. Like, I thought you were going to help me. I am. No, no. This is everything they know about needles is that needles are bad, that they hurt. A mountain climber stranded on the mountain, dizzying height, wants to get down. You tell him the only way to get down I know this sounds illogical, but you're going to have to go a little bit higher up and over onto the other ledge, and then you'll be able to get down. I'm not going any higher. You're crazy. Sometimes the only way to get down is to go up. The only way to stop the finger hurting is to hurt the finger a little bit more. Sometimes the only way to float is to take a deep breath and suspend all of your judgment and disregard all of your evaluation of the situation and to place your confidence in someone else. That's so easy to say that here in this room between you and me. Trust Jesus. Don't lean on your own understanding. But in all your paths, acknowledge the Lord. We say things like that. We quote scripture verses like that. We tell ourselves we believe it. And now Jesus is asking, do you believe that I am able do you? To place our faith in Jesus exalts him. It is the purest, most perfect thing that we can do. We, we can't bring anything else to our salvation. We are hopeless sinners before a righteous and holy God. We've offended him. And at the end of the day, all we can do is trust in him in his provision, in his power, in his ability to make the situation right. It's completely looking away from ourselves and looking completely to God, trusting him as we disregard ourselves. And here's the thing, God delights in that kind of a faith. Let me explain this to you. Alexander the Great, Macedonian general who conquered the world, once had a general who came to him and this general had performed really well on the field of battle. And Alexander the Great asked the general, he said, what can I do to reward you 
for your faithfulness to me on the battlefield. And the general said, I have a daughter who's getting married. Would you pay for the wedding? Sure. He's sacked Babylon. He's conquered kingdoms. He's got all kinds of money. No problem. I'll pay for your daughter's wedding. The general went off and organized the wedding of his daughter, the marriage of his daughter, and he sent the bill to Alexander's financial secretary. The secretary opened the bill, looked at the cost, and was flabbergasted at just how over the top it was. It's kind of like when you take a friend out for dinner and you say, hey, order anything on the menu, and immediately they look at the filet mignon, the giant $40 steak, and you're like, whoa, 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 like, come on now, like, you know, don't rake me blind over the coals here. Well, this general did. Yeah, no worries. Go pay for the wedding. Go, go have a great wedding for your daughter. All right, I will. So the secretary goes to Alexander and he says, this is the cost of the wedding. I don't think we should pay it. And Alexander the Great, his response was, pay the bill. No questions asked. Well, the secretary had some questions. How can we just pay this bill? What are you thinking? What's going through your mind? We can't pay this. Pay the bill. My general pays me the greatest compliment. One, he believes that I am wealthier than I actually am. So he thinks highly of my fortune. He thinks highly of the resources that I have amassed. Number two, and this is the greater compliment that he has paid to me, he believes that I'm generous. He believes that I am compassionate and overflowing with richness towards those who serve me. And he's not afraid to lean in on that generosity. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, when we place our confidence, hear me clearly here, when I use the word faith, when I'm talking about belief, not talking about an understanding of who Jesus is, although that's critical to this type of faith. I'm not talking about intellectual knowledge of where he was at in human history and what other people said about him. I'm talking about confidence. I'm talking about hope. I'm talking about trusting him, believing that he is smarter than you, that he really does know more than you know, and as crazy as some of the things he asks you to do might seem, they're really best for you. To put your confidence in him, to put your hope in him, to trust him. That's the kind of faith we're talking about. Jesus says to the blind men, do you believe that I can do this? They started off by calling him son of David. And they finish it by calling him Lord. They say, yes, Lord. You are the king of Israel. And you are the God of the universe. We believe. So he heals them. And they shift from hope and the glory of hope and trusting in Jesus, believing he's the king, having complete confidence in him. He gives them a simple instruction, and they shift off of that hope into their own understanding. Now, he heals them. It says here, 
Verse 29, then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. They have faith. They believe he can do it. He heals them. He grants them their request. They're healed. Verse 30, their eyes were opened. So he's Lord. He's king. He's in charge. He's the boss. He's got the power. He can do it. He says, don't tell anybody. And what do they do? They run around and start telling people. Now, let me ask you, do you suppose they're happy in this moment to actually see? Totally. They've never before been able to see. They're seeing a whole new world, blues and pinks and reds. They're seeing people. Before, when they were trying to understand the world around them, they could only do it on the basis of what they could hear, and they could kind of identify where things were at, and they could kind of sense where people were at. Now they're able to see. Their range of perception far out exceeds their ability with their ears. They can see much further than they could ever hear. A whole new world has been opened up to them. Do you suppose they're happy? Absolutely they're happy. Do you suppose as they reflect on what Jesus Christ has done for them that they're grateful? Absolutely they're grateful. Gratitude is that emotion you feel in which somebody gives you a gift. Somebody gives you a gift and you recognize that that person who gives you the gift loves you, cares about you, wants to give you a gift. There's no reason why Jesus has to heal them. He chooses to heal them. They receive his gracious healing. They receive that act of grace in their life. They're grateful for it. They're overwhelmed by it. And then, in the very next instant, stepping away from faith in Jesus Christ as king, as Lord, and running hog wild with the emotion of happiness and joy and gratitude, They disobey Jesus Christ. Some of you are here, and you weren't here about three months ago when we looked at the leper. I'm just going to, you might be having the question in your mind, is this an arbitrary request? Is, Is Jesus, like, why is he asking them to not go out and tell people about this? Isn't his job to prove that he's the Messiah? Isn't a part of that demonstrating his power by miracles and healings and things of that nature? Isn't that what this is all about? Why does he ask them, is this some sort of an arbitrary test? Even if it was arbitrary, he is testing them. He is asking to see whether or not they're going to obey him in all things. That's perfectly valid, but I don't think that's really what he's doing here. Don't flip there. Just listen. Over in the Gospel of Mark, In Mark chapter 1, there's an account of a leper that Jesus heals, and afterwards he asks the leper not to tell anybody, and the gospel of Mark chapter 1 verse 45 makes a statement, the leper went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that, now here's the inevitable result, Jesus is asking him not to say anything, he goes out, he tells everybody, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but remained out in desolate places and people were coming to him. So, Jesus isn't just making a silly request to test the blind men, although it still counts as a test to see whether they'll trust in him. There's purpose for it. There's a tactical, practical, strategic purpose. He knows there's opposition coming from the Pharisees. He wants to continue to perform miracles. He wants to continue healing. And if they go out and they make a big fuss about this, it's going to create problems and it's going to require that he has to step back away from civilization. It's just going to make life more difficult for everyone else. And so his request here is very straightforward. But not knowing that, if they trusted him, they should have obeyed. Now, gratitude is a disaster in the Christian life. Not that gratitude is wrong. Don't misunderstand me. Jesus Christ dies on the cross for our sins, and we see how much love God has for us. 
the emotion of gratitude, that feeling of love and worth and appreciation that you have when you reflect on the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that is entirely appropriate. You received that salvation by faith. You trusted that it was legitimate, that in God's eyes it matters for something. So you embrace salvation by faith and you begin to feel grateful. Now my fear is that too often out of that emotion of gratitude we try to live the Christian life. I hear it commonly stated. Jesus has done so much for you. Now what will you do for him? We just came through Christmas. I'm willing to bet most everybody in this room got a gift from somebody that they weren't expecting to get a gift from. Can I tell you honestly, the emotion that goes on in my heart when I get an unexpected gift? First emotion, wow, I'm surprised, thank you. Second emotion, oh, I owe this guy a gift. I gotta get him a card or something. Maybe I'll, I'll write out a card and I'll put it in the mail and then when it comes to him you know, two weeks after Christmas, I'll be like, oh, I guess the postman messed up or whatever, I don't know. I was always gonna get you that card. You, know? you try to cover your bases. This guy got me a gift. Now think about it. What's a gift? What is a gift? It's grace. It's something you freely receive without earning it, without having to pay it back. You get that gift. We all have had this emotion. We receive a gift. We're grateful. We're going to pay it back. But that nullifies the gift. If the gift is something you paid for or if it's something you earn, then it's not a gift. It's your due. It's your wages. So I want you to think of salvation as sort of like being invited to live in a house. Jesus Christ gives you salvation, and, and it's sort of like he invites you to come into this beautiful dwelling place, a beautiful home, and here's the deal. You live in this house, this house with God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. You live with the Trinity, and here's the conditions. He only asks that you just come and accept the gift of this house. He's going to make it yours. He's going to give it to you. You just come, and here's the deal. You just enjoy his fellowship and his company forever, and you don't taint that fellowship or corrupt that fellowship by bringing any kind of idols into the house. You live with God the Father. You enjoy a relationship with him and you just receive this house as a free gift you say thanks that's so wonderful and you recognize the beauty and the splendor and the sheer delight of living in this house and then all too often you hear preachers such as myself say things like that's a nice house how are you gonna pay for it and all too often we think yeah like what should i do here it's sort of unworthy of me just to live in this house without doing something to earn it. It's kind of like we get this gift at Christmas time, we're like, oh yeah, I need to give this guy a gift too later on down the road. That's to misunderstand it. That's what I like to refer to as the, the debtor's work ethic. Somebody gives you a gift, and rather than seeing it as a gift, you see it as a loan to be repaid. In other words, by giving you the gift, you feel, although it's not the giver's intention, you feel now that you've been placed into debt and you've got to pay your way out of it. Gratitude is good for expressing to the Lord your emotion of appreciation, of love, of affection for the love and the affection he gives to you. But gratitude 
will not sustain you in the Christian life. Out of gratitude, we sing worship to Jesus. We say, we love you, we praise you, we are thankful for that. And that's an appropriate thing to do. Now, we can't fully understand the dynamics that are going on here, but they're grateful, they're happy, and yet he's got other things he needs to achieve, and so he tells them, stay quiet. They're grateful, they're happy. The overflow of their heart is to tell people what Jesus has done for them, which is good. There's nothing wrong with that except for the simple fact that he has told them not to. We live by something greater than gratitude. We live by faith in future grace. That's not a term that I came up with. I borrowed that term. But if Jesus Christ has given us a gift in the past, if he loves us so much that he has died for us to free us from our sins, then we understand that the Christian life starts off as a gift, which means that every single day after this, we live trusting in Jesus and his instructions for continued blessing, for continued grace in our life. The child comes to his mother. I got a splinter in my hand. Did he have anything to do with being born in that family? No. Did he have a choice in it? No. God gave him his parents. He loves his mom and dad. He did nothing to earn being in that family. He did nothing to deserve being a part of that relationship. He comes to his mom. He says, Mom, my finger is hurting. I got a splinter in my finger. She whips out the sewing needle. Whoa, whoa. Now, does mom want your blessing? Yes, she does. Might it hurt a little bit? Maybe just a little bit more. But on the end of it, there is blessing. You didn't start off in that relationship with your mom by any merit or any work that you, you did. And to continue to enjoy the fullness of that relationship, you're going to have to surrender day by day to a smarter, loving parent who really ultimately desires your best. I have heard, and I myself have said this, that the Christian life should be an expression of gratitude. But the problem is every gift we receive is undeserved and we don't earn it we don't deserve it and even though we should be grateful gratitude at the end of the day will not sustain us it didn't sustain these guys in their walk with Christ and it won't sustain you either and I'm speaking from personal experience a number of years ago when I was asked to become the pastor the lead preacher here at Bridge Baptist Church I was terrified of public speaking. I still am to a certain extent. All these people watching you. You're up there in front of everybody. At that time, we had a little music stand. It was really hard to hide behind the music stand, right? Steve was good to me. He built me a, this is a little bit better kind of thing to hide behind. I made this statement, and I, I think there are, still, there are still quite a few of you here who heard me make this statement. If Jesus Christ could hang on the cross for six hours for me, 
then surely I can stand up and preach for 45, 55, 75, 85 minutes for him. Now, what have I done in that moment? I've taken gratitude because I am grateful for what Jesus has done for me on the cross, and I have used it as the motivation, the, the power for sustaining obedience in preaching the Word of God. Do you know what happens? After about six or seven weeks of preaching for 45, 55 minutes, you say to yourself, well, I've put in about seven hours now. He put in six hours on the cross. I've got about seven hours of feeling terrified and sick to my stomach and going up there and this is horrible. You see, sooner or later, gratitude starts to wear thin. Sooner or later, obedience, if it's based on gratitude, it stops working. We say, well, you know, like, really, am I really accomplishing anything when I preach? Because, you know, there are some days when it doesn't feel like anything significant has ever happened. You stand up, you open the Word of God, and you preach, and you pour your life into it, and you preach, and you, you're sick, and you're terrified of standing up there, and you're miserable to do it, and then on top of that, you don't even see a lot of fruit going on. You don't see people's lives being radically altered or any kind of massive transformation taking place. Sooner or later, gratitude stops, and you start to ask yourself the question, should I be doing something else with my time? And for some of you, I dare say you're probably in that same boat. I know Jesus Christ has saved me. And out of gratitude for him, I'm going to step out in the Christian life. I'm going to do certain things because I'm grateful for what Jesus has done, such as go to church on Sunday, participate in a life group, read my Bible. And sooner or later, you're like, wow, reading my Bible, that, that actually takes a little bit of discipline. That's, there's some effort there. Going to church, i got to get up on a Sunday morning and get dressed and brush my teeth and go to church when I could just sleep in. I'm grateful for what God has done, but man, there's a, there's a little bit of effort in all of this. And at the end of the day, gratitude won't keep us walking the Christian life. What will keep us walking the Christian life is knowing that by doing what Jesus asks us to do, He's going to give us future blessings. He's going to give us future grace. He's going to give us future gifts. I want you to just listen to this for a second. This is from the book of Matthew. This is chapter 13. Jesus is trying to minister in his own, his own city, and it makes a statement that a prophet is, without, is not without honor except in his own hometown. In other words, his own hometown didn't receive him, didn't believe in him. And it makes a statement in Matthew 13, 58. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. They wouldn't put their confidence in Jesus they wouldn't put their hope in Christ. They wouldn't suspend their judgment and trust totally in what Jesus was saying. And Jesus affirms that sometimes the only way you can help a person, the only way he will choose in his sovereignty at times to help you and me to bring blessing into our lives is if we will suspend our judgment and put all of our hope back in Him. Which means that 
That's how every day has to be lived. Not on the basis of gratitude. And please don't misunderstand me. Gratitude is good. We're not saying thank you for what we have received. We're saying thank you for what you have given us. And now we chase hard after you on the promise that there's more blessing to be had based on faith. When I stand up to preach on a Sunday morning, most Sundays nothing spectacular happens. But every once in a blue moon, something spectacular does happen. Every once in a blue moon, mountains tumble, spiritual strongholds are destroyed, and people are set free. What brings me up here week after week is not gratitude. That got me up here, but it wore thin really quick. What keeps me up here is the hope that on some Sundays, Jesus will see fit to use me to achieve the miraculous. That gives me a front row seat to something special. He wants to do that with you. You might have a coworker, or a family member, or somebody in your neighborhood, and you talk to them about Jesus, and they say to you, no, 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 like I, I don't like to hear these things. You say, well, I've done my job. I'm very grateful. I talked to him about it. I'm done with it. Or do you approach it with faith that if you persist in it, God might see fit to use you to persuade somebody to have their eyes opened, to have their heart illuminated. If you persist by faith, you might be the one that gets to see front row what God is doing. At the end of the day, we have to take the words of Christ seriously when he says in verse 30, verse 29, according to your faith, according to your belief, according to your confidence in me, be it done to you. The author of Hebrews writing to a bunch of Christians who are sliding, backsliding in their, in their walk with Christ makes this powerful statement. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You don't find it in the scriptures. Live life on the basis of gratitude. You owe God. Gratitude is good and scriptures affirm it, but the danger is in our pride, we too often turn gratitude into a debtor's work ethic, which is why God never says that anything we should do should be on the basis of gratitude, but on faith in what he says. Marie Durant spends 38 years in a tower, and all she has to do is say one word. She doesn't even have to mean it. She could lie, abjure, 
and have her life back. Go on about worshiping how she's always worshiped. Go on about living her walk with Christ how she's always walked. And she knows that she could lie and that Jesus would forgive the lie. She knows these things. And I'm telling you, at the end of the day, sooner or later, Marie Durant knows that it's an act of faith that God has something greater in store. Her obedience and her integrity to speak truth and to hold fast to Jesus Christ is not going to happen on the basis of gratitude. It's going to happen by trusting in Jesus and in the grace that he gives. Let's bow for a word of prayer.